you very much for reading and praying. You can take that. Thank you. Well, here we are, right? Genesis 39, we're, we're still journeying through the book of Genesis. We've been doing this for some time. We're in part four. We started with the beginnings, right? That was part one. Part two was a guy named Abram who turned into Abraham, which we may have heard of. And then it was Jacob. And now we're in like week three of this, as Josue called it, a novella on Joseph, right? It's this grand story on this life of Joseph. And if you remember, two weeks ago, we left the story before we had this little interlude of Judah and Tamar, which was such a random thing to put there if it wasn't true. Like the only reason why you would put that there is because it actually happened. So we kind of have to piece together a sermon that happened two weeks ago and this one as well as the many more to come on Joseph. So, so we have some ways to do that, and I think the Scripture helps us do that. If we just turned one page over, actually it's on the same page for me, on Genesis 37, 36, right? We see Joseph being given dreams, those dreams ultimately being shattered by God because they will not come to fruition easily or simply or in a straight line. And we're reminded of that when we realize that his, 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 his journey to those dreams took a major detour. And the detour is found in chapter 37, verse 36, which says this. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. That was where we left off a couple of weeks ago, and it was like the preview at the end of the Netflix episode where they kind of leave you on a cliffhanger. Right now I'm watching Cobra Kai. Why? Why am I still watching that show? Anyways, I'm invested at this point, and I have to finish it because that's my personality. If you start something, you got to just knock it out, man. Just power through. Well, you shouldn't have to power through entertainment, but I am. Anyways, at the end of that, there's these little, like, cliffhangers where you're like, ooh, what's going to happen next? That's what that was. It's a cliffhanger to get you to go and binge watch the next episode. Okay, so the next episode was Judah and Tamar, and we're going, okay, that was crazy. I don't know what that was about. And then now we're here on the next episode, and 39.1 says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. Remember? Remember what happened? Don't get sidetracked by the story that was before. And Potiphar, an officer of the, uh, of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought him, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. This is the recap of the episode, right? So that's where we are in this story of Joseph's novella. And if you remember, that passage had a, had a great understanding, a great theme, and this passage also has a theme. There could be many things that we could pull out, and I'm going to really try hard not to go on and chase the rabbit uh, this week. But I think instead what we can do is we can just be faithful here to the text to understand this main theme. God's presence sustains and strengthens his people through every peak and valley. God's presence sustains and strengthens his people through every peak and valley. And you might think, like, what is it about God's presence? Well, if we look at this, and I'm just going to read the beginning and the end here to help us frame, because I think God is framing for us the most important thing that we can pull out of the text. These, these bookends to this passage. Look with me at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph... 
and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his master's sight and attended him. And he made him overseer over his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Now we fast forward to verse 21, and I want you to see the back end of this book end. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. Does this sound familiar? Of all those who were in prison, whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. From beginning to end of this particular episode in Joseph's life, and it's a great uh, preview to the rest of Joseph's life, from beginning to end, what's most important about Joseph is that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Think about your life. Would you settle for something on your tombstone to say, the Lord was with him? The Lord was with her. Could that be the thing that everyone else describes you as and what you're living in now? We would settle for that, wouldn't we? We would settle for, man, the Lord was with Nick. The Lord was with Lindsay. The Lord was with Aubrey. The Lord was with you. Would you settle for that? Would you settle for that being the thing? That's your reputation. Hey, I don't know about the mess that they're in. Oh, that's the one that, that, that had that happen to them? Isn't that usually what people are talking about? Oh, it was the one, those are the family. Mm. No, 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 no. It's not about all those circumstances and the mess that we're in. It's who's with us in the midst of that mess. So would you take a life that was described as God with you? Of course we would. The problem is, the problem is we want God's presence, but we don't want the chaos that necessitates it. We want God's presence, but we usually don't want the chaos that comes and is ultimately the cause of God's presence with us, which is a bunch of fallen craziness in this world. For Joseph, God promised to be with him in the beginning and in the end, and it is assumed then in the messy middle. See, this isn't what you think about when you think about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. The first thing isn't what, the first thing you think about with Joseph and Potiphar's wife isn't, oh yeah, the Lord was with him in that. We think, man, like false accusation, wrong imprisonment, he fled from sexual immorality, that's good. We think of all of that, we don't necessarily primarily think of the Lord being with him through all that. If we think about Joseph, Joseph, we could be reading a story about a man who was who had become uh, bitter and angry and vengeful, right? His brothers have sold him into slavery. We could have been reading a story where a man rightfully took vengeance on his own uh, reputation and what other people did to him, but he didn't do that. 
I find myself asking, why not? Is that maybe that's a little bit too revealing for my own character? Like, if I'm sold by my, by my siblings, if I'm forgotten in prison for what we think is at least a decade, I'm wondering, how did a man emerge from all that, not bitter, not angry, not pursuing vengeance? The same question, I would say, could be posed of us. In our messy middle of life, whether it's God was with you in the beginning, and yes, God is with you in the end, that all of the messy middle, that we could ultimately become people that are also vengeful and angry and bitter. What will keep you from becoming that person? I think that's the question that is being posed by the text today. You see, you started out faithful in your marriage and in your career and in your friendships with people. What will sustain you in marriage to be someone that is faithful, just as you said you would be in the beginning, all the way 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, should God so choose? I was in a meeting with church planters a couple of weeks ago, and we just all lamented, particularly the leader of this meeting, just said, I'm just real tired of reading about the guys that are burning out and can't make it. We're all trained to start something great. We're not trained to sustain it for 40 years. And I'm tired of reading about the young leader that starts a church or takes over a church. They make the headlines because they're charismatic, and many people get drawn in to this Huge building, lots of people, unbelievable music, and great kids for programs, only for them to burn out in 5, 10, or 15 years or disqualify themselves. It's happened over and over and over again. And guess what? I'm no different. I'm not bringing this up to condemn my brothers. How dare I? I instead say, pray for like the leadership of all of Christianity. As much as you're praying, and as much as you're under stress, man, we as well, with you, continue to pray for pastors and deacons and leaders and elders as we continue to push back the darkness and maintain spiritual integrity, lead our families and all of you with some sort of semblance of godly character. Please, I'm pleading with you. And as we lead, and as you are led, and as many of you will help lead, as we push back the darkness, what's going to keep us? In your career, when your boss, if you're not ever going to be in full-time vocational ministry, if you're in your industry and your boss comes to you and you have brought up to them, hey, why is this off? Like, this is not the right thing to do. And your boss convinces you in, indus in this industry, this is just how we do things. And you know it lacks integrity. What will keep you? What will hold you fast? In those moments, when, when Joseph was, was found in a really precarious situation, what kept him? I would say it is God's presence among everything else. Is it good boundaries? Is it a good solid strategy? Is it a killer work ethic? Those are all good things we're going to unpack today. But I would say that the failed marriages, the wounded children, and the rise of deconstructionism as a result of the latest pastor scandal tells us that good strategies, solid boundaries, and a killer work ethic are not going to do. Something else has to capture our heart besides the latest how-to podcast, which y'all listen to, and I do too, whatever it may be, in your industry or mine. 
For Joseph, the thing that sustained and strengthened him was God's presence. And let me just have a pre-point to the points. The pre-point to the points is this. God's big promise for your life is to be with you. Not to bail you out. Is to be with you through the storm, to walk with you faithfully through the fire, and to ultimately be present through every sort of chaos that we might endure. Right? If you look at the, the grand scope of Scripture, if Josue was here, he would say meta-narrative, but he's not, so we're not going to say that word. Instead, if you begin in Genesis 3, right, what do you see? You see the fall of Adam and Eve. And when you see the fall of Adam and Eve, you see God walking in the garden looking for his people to be with them. In the midst of the first and greatest sin to which everything fell, God pursued to be with his people. That's Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, he had already established a rhythm and a habit of being present with them. Fast forward all the way to the end of time, and what is our great reward in Revelation 21, verse 3? The great reward that we see is this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God, the place where God make his, his place known, his presence known, is with us. You can get caught up in all the details of what the new Jerusalem and the new temple and the new garden and the new heavens and the earth are going to be. But don't forget the greatest promise of all. He will be with us. He will dwell with them, it says, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. From Genesis to Revelation, God fulfills this promise in increasing measure. At the end of the Exodus with Moses, the great culmination of the book of Exodus is that God's glory fills the tabernacle. So It's so glorious and it's so holy that Moses cannot enter. Moses is God's favorite person on the planet at the time, can't go in. It's too glorious. It's too magnificent. When Solomon completes his temple, the permanent dwelling place of God at the time, right? When he finishes the temple, God's glory comes down, and the high priest could not enter. That's Genesis. That's Kings or Samuel. Fast forward over to John, and what do you see in John 1:14? And the Word became flesh, and he dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the same glory that was so magnificent and so beautiful and so holy that Moses couldn't see it, Moses couldn't enter in and come near, that the high priest couldn't get near, that what does that glorious God do? Oh, we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what does he do? He is with us. God's promise has always been to be with us in a special and significant way. When Jesus died, resurrected, ascended, what did he do? We quote it almost every week in this church on purpose. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And we usually stop there to our own detriment. And he says at the end of that, for behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. God's promise has always been to be with us. My question for you is, is that enough for you? 
or do you need him to fix your life? Do you need him to intervene? Do you need a miracle? Plead with him. Beg with him for intervention. Plead for miracles. Ask God to be merciful to you. But he hasn't promised those things to us. He's promised his presence. He might intervene. He might. He might not. Will we be content when he says no? See, we've got to quit looking for him to rescue us from every fire, every frustration, and every failure that we have in life. Because if we're going to follow him, we're going to go through fire, we're going to get frustrated, and we're going to fail. That's part of following. He has promised to be with us in the fire of the peace and our frustration and redefines failure and success as simple obedience to him, faithfulness. So we don't get this right, and why I'm doing a pre-point to the points is because we don't get this right, we're going to start asking God to do things, expecting God to do things that he did not tell us he would do. See, if we think that God is just going to rescue us, why is Joseph, his chosen man, in prison? Why has he been human trafficked? Why has he been betrayed by his brothers? Surely the chosen one of God would be protected from all of this. But God promised not to protect him from all that, but to be present in it. So, friends, there are traps in our culture that I want to point out for us that I think Joseph, this story, pull out of the text and draw us close to the goodness of God as we do. So, let's look at some traps. Three traps, right? Trap number one, good boundaries before God's presence. You guys have heard all the, all the fanfare around boundaries. If you haven't by now, then you haven't been a Christian for very long. But surely you've read the book, you've listened to the audiobook of Boundaries. Very good book. Highly recommend that book, especially when dealing with families of origins or crazy families that we all are in or trying to figure out how to navigate life when everybody expects you to be somebody that you can't be. Awesome book. And yet, not exactly what we need in every part of life. Good boundaries are good, but I want you to picture yourself in Joseph's shoes. A young, handsome, and confident leader, and a woman with whom he is in a close and consistent relationship with, starts making daily advances. Let's say you're about 18 years old. I don't know what you were doing when you were 18 years old, but I'm pre-Jesus, so anything I share after that, you can't hold me accountable for. I did not know Jesus until I was almost 21. So at 18... You didn't, want to know, you didn't want to know Lance at 18. That wasn't fun. It wasn't fun for anybody. Arrogant, young, just thought he knew everything. Probably still does. I'm going to look back at the age I am now when I'm older at 50 and 60 and go, man, 43-year-old Lance was an idiot. Somebody goes, oh. I know. You see it and I don't yet. I know. I'm going to get there, guys. But picture yourself in Joseph's shoes. Some woman, we don't know if she was attractive, not attractive. We don't know anything about her. We just know that she was Potiphar's wife. And we do know that daily she wanted him to sleep with her. And would do things like, okay, like, I get it. You're kind of like a man of integrity. Maybe if you just want to watch a movie with me. Maybe if you don't want to be in the bed with me or, or, or do the things with me, but you could just lay down next to me. It was watch a movie. Students, newsflash, watching a movie never ends in watching a movie. And I'm being for real. That's a thing that we've got to be aware of, especially young students in the room. 
Just lie next to me. It'll be fine. No, no, it's not going to be fine. And Joseph had the integrity, right? But he had good boundaries, but they, they didn't matter. So for all of the, hey, don't be alone with people of the opposite sex, understand this. That boundary didn't matter for Joseph. There was a woman there that had predatory behavior that was going to find a way to corner him when, whether he had all of his boundaries up or not. So we couple this with the problem of a no-win situation that he has as a slave, right? If he gives in to Potiphar's wife, he throws the house into disarray, he betrays his master, and he likely is killed as a result. That would have been the easy penalty for his sin. If he doesn't give in to Potiphar's wife, if you put yourself in a position, he shames the woman whom he has been entrusted to please. He cannot win in this situation, and so maybe you've been put in can't-win situations. What is going to steady you to make the right decision? Is the decision going to be weighed with, well, this is the lesser of two evils? Or is, this the, or is your decision going to be weighed by something far weightier than circumstance? Many people read this story and they will moralize it and say, well, we must need to be men and women who are strong against the world's sexual temptation. And this is true. There are things on websites, there are things on social media, there are things on Netflix and HBO Max that we absolutely should not watch. But if we think the problem is out there, we're missing the point. The problem is in here. Right? This is true. The generations past, um, they would have got, uh, gotten on their pulpit, right, or on TV, and they would have condemned those that have given themselves to the world of that devil's music of all those things that are on those episodes, right? And all they're saying is put up boundaries, right? And those are good things. If you struggle going to that website, you better put on covenant eyes on your phone. That's good and insufficient. Because guess what's going to happen? And, and before I get there, like, I just want to be clear. I'm not mocking boundaries. I want us to understand they only will do so much. The Bible's very clear. Boundaries are good, especially when it comes to sexual morality. Like, I really struggled with which verse to read out of Proverbs 5 through 8 on the, on the enticement of the adulterous woman. But because we're talking about adultery and she's trying to pull him into adultery, I, I just want to read a couple. Proverbs 5, 32. He, commit, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. If you are in this room, Number one, and you've, you, you're thinking of committing adultery, it will be a destruction to yourself. If you're in this room and you have committed adultery or you've been a victim of committing adultery and it feels like your world has been destroyed, it's true. And yet God does not leave us there, as we will see. He loves the adulterer. He loves the one that was, uh, ad adultery was committed against. And he equals the playing field when he says, if you've lusted, you've also committed adultery. Not one of us is better than the other in the sight of God. But if we go on and we go, man, Proverbs 7, right? Uh, 25 through 27. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways, the adulteress. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol. It goes down to death. Going down to the chambers of death that reminds us of Potiphar's wife just calling him in and it also reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6 18 of Joseph 
where Paul says clearly to the Corinthian church, flee from sexual immorality. This is good. These are boundaries around we should set our house. But no matter how many boundaries we have, the only thing that's going to cure a corrupt heart is basking in the presence of God. No matter how many filters you put on your phone, or perhaps if alcohol is your thing, no matter how many times you've put alcohol out of your house, or perhaps greed is your thing, no matter how many times that you uh, suppose yourself to be a generous person, there will always be reasons to be greedy. Or perhaps shopping is your drug. No matter how many times you swear off Target, what are you going to do? You're going to go to Old Navy for the kids. They need some things. Well, what are you doing over in that department? This isn't the kids' department. Oh, I wandered. I strayed into their path. See, all the boundaries in the world are not going to fix our heart. But I will say this. You show me someone who has learned at the feet of Jesus. And I will show you someone who has already won against the greatest temptation. To not be with him. See, marriage counseling for me, whenever somebody sits down to me, with me and they go, hey, I need some help, we've got to figure some things out, I just go, okay, what does your relationship with Jesus look like? Because if you're, if you're neglecting that at all, we're just going to focus on that. Before we talk about your wife, before we talk about your husband, we're going to talk about you and Jesus. Because if you are not pursuing Jesus, there will always be distance and conflict. Even when you're pursuing Jesus, there will be distance and conflict. But at least with two people pursuing the same person, you'll get closer and closer and closer together. If one pursuing and the other one isn't, it's always going to have distance. It's all about being in the presence of God. Boundaries, then, are a band-aid which cover up the wound and stop the bleeding, but don't do anything to promote healing for our heart. You're thinking, why are you making a big deal about this? Because Joseph could have done the right thing for all the wrong reasons. You know what the wrong reasons would have been? To please his master. You know, he doesn't do it for that reason. Look at with, with me at verse 9. He is not greater in this house than I am, that Joseph is saying. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It is God's presence that is at the forefront of Joseph's mind. That's what is going to see him through to the end. That's trap number one, good boundaries before God's presence. Joseph is a man who puts God's presence at the forefront of what he's about, and therefore he understands it's not about sinning against Potiphar or throwing his household into disarray or betraying his master or all the circumstantial chaos that would come as a result of his sin. Instead, it is that he does not want to sin and therefore uh, dissuade God from being present with him. Trap number two, and this is going to be a good one, y'all. Y'all are going to love this one. Strategy over steadfast love. I listened to a podcast this week. Uh, John Mark Comer has a podcast. If you don't know him, he's a pastor up in, in Portland, and he was quoting someone else. So I don't even know where he got this from, but I'm going to quote him who was quoting someone else from his podcast, which is going to become ironic when I start to uh, uh, unpack this. He says this, technique is to modern secular culture what sorcery was to ancient pre-Christian culture. Technique. Strategy. So, again, picture yourself as Joseph. Now you're being put in prison. What are you going to do? Are you not going to do what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to examine the walls. It's the first thing I'm doing when I'm put in prison. I'm going to figure out where the mortar is chipping off. I'm going to figure out where there's a weakness in the jail cell. I'm going to start talking and chatting it up with my prison, like with the prison guard. Are you not going to start chatting him up? Because I'm going to start chatting him up. Tell me about your family. Tell me about you. I'm going to start chatting up the, 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 the prison guard. I'm going to do everything strategically necessary to get me out. And it's all good, but not sufficient. I'm going to start telling my story. Are you going to tell your story? What are you in for? Well, you don't know this, but I'm innocent. Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, I'm innocent. I actually fled from Potiphar's wife. Um, I'm the righteous one here. If you would just hear my story, and all of a sudden you start to sing a song that no one will listen to and is probably out of tune. You see, I'm examining the walls. I'm innocent. I'm telling these stories. And in today's age, if we're not thinking about how our lives settle into just a strategic design, I think we are missing the point of what God is inviting us into. See, it's not bad to be strategic, but it's ultimately not satisfying. In today's age, though, there is a strategy for everything. If you want to start a business, there's a podcast for that. If you want to change careers, there's already 18 million YouTube videos on how you can do that and be an expert at whatever it is. If you want to better your marriage, there's all sorts of content online for that. If you want to figure out how to parent past the obstacle that you're currently in, there's a blog for that with 14 verses on it. We are a very info-heavy uh, uh, environment with all the strategy that you want. Is it making a difference? In the culture at large, I'm, I'm getting a heavy no from the counselor in the room. The one that sits with people day in and day out just gave me the most confirmation for this reality that we could ever have. Absolutely not. It's not making a difference at all. And yet we're tied to it. We're going to get out of here. We're going to wonder what's going to happen this week, and we're going to Google the answer. We're going to get on a, on, a, on a podcast. Strategy. Technique. And it's a drug which will never satisfy what we're trying to figure out. It's not bad, but it's not what we see Joseph do. Why not? Because it would be a terrible thing, friends. Listen. It would be a terrible thing to strategize your way out of whatever prison you're in and not have God with you. What if you get out of the prison and God stays in the prison? What if it was God's mercy for Joseph to be put in that prison so that he didn't eventually succumb to Potiphar's wife's advances? What if it was for the greater good? What if this was God's mercy and his protection way apart from strategy? See, there's one thing that captures Joseph in the midst of this prison, and what is it? It's God's presence, but it's a unique thing. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. There it is. He's with him. He's present with him. That's the great promise that we also have. And what did God do? He showed him steadfast love. Okay, we've talked about this word in here before, but I'm going to quote Chuck Swindoll, who said this at chapel when I was in seminary long ago. It's this word chesed, and it's going to get loud. But he would go do this in, in chapel, and he'd go, chesed. 
And he said that so we would all remember, and I'm doing the same thing so we would remember. Chesed! And he said, if you don't spit on somebody, you're not saying it right. This is why this is empty. It's why it's called the splash zone. Chesed! Steadfast love. Covenant kind of love. The kind of love that does not depend on your reciprocation back to God. In other words, he's going to love you no matter what. And it's that kind of love that he shows in a significant and special way to Joseph while he's rotten away in prison. While he's got all these gifts, and he's got all these dreams, and he's been anointed by God. And he's, he's there, and it's in steadfast love. I haven't forgotten about you, Joe. I'm for you, Joe. You remember my steadfast love for you. So friends, we're not in prison, right? We're not we're here. We might think we're in prison. We might be pulling up to a really terrible job every day. You might be going home from that job to a really un, uh, un, un, uh, it's a terrible circumstance at home. Apparently I can't talk all of a sudden. You go to work and you sit in that parking lot and you wonder, is God ever going to deliver me from this place? And you go home and your wife or your husband also doesn't give you the attention. You guys are at strife, headed towards a terrible end, and that also is terrible. Or maybe it's great between husband and wife, and the kids are just a lot. And you're sitting in that driveway one way, going or coming back home, and you're thinking probably to yourself, Lord, help me out of this or help me get through this. Give me the right strategy. You know it's insufficient? What would happen if you sat in that driveway either on the way to that circumstance on the way to work or headed home into something that's less than ideal. But if you sat in that driveway and you remember God's steadfast love for you, and you think, well, what do you mean? You remembered that you were annoying. You remembered that you were insufficient. You remembered that I have high demands for other people. I have high demands for God, and yet God loves you in such a way that is unique and special through his son Jesus, that is forgiveness of sins, being brought into a new life, given ultimate freedom by the power of his spirit. How much does that change whatever you're walking into? I can then walk into my job, who I don't like or whatever it may be, and I can enter in steadied by the steadfast love of God. I can then go home and realize that it's not about me, also at my job, and realize I'm here as God's vessel of grace. God is with me. He will see me through it. At the forefront of my mind, that is not strategy. It's presence. And it's steadfast love. And that's what we see with Joseph. Trap number three, and then we're going to be done. Number one, good boundaries before God's presence. Not a bad thing. Boundaries are good, but not enough. Number two, strategy over steadfast love. Not a bad thing, but the steadfast love is the only thing that's going to keep us from any sort of sin and temptation in this world. And then trap number three is putting my story before God's gospel story. Again, we could have read about a guy who got to the end of his life and wondered why his life ended up this way, but we don't. If Joseph were caught up in the micro, his own story, this would be a guy and a story about a guy who complained and wailed and wondered why God betrayed his trust by cruelly giving him dreams only to take decades to fulfill them. But we don't see that. We see somebody who has a trust in a macro story. 
and God's story. It is the gospel story. See, the gospel story is creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. Joseph's story mirrors the bigger story of creation, right? He has initial dreams. It then further mirrors it with this fall of being sold into slavery. It has redemption now, or it will have redemption, when he has more dreams while he's in jail. And then there will be renewal upon the horizon when he reconciles with his brothers. It is a mirror to the gospel story, not just circumstantially to creation, fall, redemption, renewal, but also a mirror to Jesus, your only hope. Just as Jesus, Jesus, Joseph, Joseph was sold, so therefore was Jesus. Just as Joseph was falsely accused, so was Jesus. Just as Joseph was falsely and terribly imprisoned with no witnesses, so was Jesus. And just as Joseph sat in high authority, was then sent to prison as a servant, and eventually ascended back into power, so did Jesus sit in eternity past, high above everything else, sent to earth forever as a servant to sinners, only to eventually ascend back into power, sitting at the right hand of his Father. See, this tiny micro story that you're in, called life can get real crazy and real out of whack if we're not also focusing on the macro and the big story of life. Our stories will follow the great pattern of all stories, creation, fall, redemption, renewal. It's in every Disney movie ever. I, I wish I could have the time to, to go through that, but it truly is. Your life will follow that great pattern of the gospel. And we romanticize our beginnings, don't we, in creation. And then we fantasize about eternity, renewal, and that messy middle of fall and redemption. Daily falls, daily redemptions through the work of Jesus. That's where we see God doing the miraculous, being present with his people. And it's in this middle space that God is calling you to lean into his presence. Not boundaries for a healthier life, not the new strategy for figuring out how to be a better parent, not just trying to get your story straight, but of deep, resilient faith birthed out of sitting with God, being present with him, because he has chosen to be present with sinners. You see, God's presence dispels the desire for sin the primacy of strategy and the pr perspective of a micro life and invites us to see our story in light of God's grander story, which is unfolding in real time, not just for you, but for your neighbor, for your coworker, and for every single person on the earth for whom Jesus also died and is working out all things for his glory and our good. When we find ourselves in a less than ideal situation, where will we lean? Where will we put our hope? Good boundaries, solid strategy, rescue, miracle, God's promise to be with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you and are grateful for you.
Lord, I just plead with us right now that if we have been in a situation that we shouldn't have put ourselves in, I pray that we would forgive ourselves because you have. If we've put our trust in you and the finished work of Jesus, then you have forgiven us of our worst days. Not our best days, our worst days. So there's always redemption with you, O Lord. Lord, by your spirit, remind us of the good news of the gospel. That yes, we're far worse than we ever thought, but far more love than we could ever imagine, as Tim Keller says. For those of us who maybe don't, that's not the, the first thing that's in our mind, that we're living a pretty good life. We're just kind of trying to make it work. I pray that we would not settle for a life that works. Would you renew a desire in us for a, not a life that works without you, but a life that might, work, not, might not work at all, but we have you. I pray that your presence is enough for us. I pray that your promise to simply be with your people be the lifeblood of resilient faith. Lord, we don't gather in here every week just because it's routine. We gather in here every week because we need the words of life to, to reignite some things in our hearts that have gone dormant because we've been lulled to sleep by the crazy parts of this world. So just resurrect whatever part of our hearts by the presence of your spirit. That's the beautiful thing. You're not just with us in prison or in a temple. You're with us in our hearts by the presence of your spirit. So, oh, Holy Spirit, resurrect us, awaken us, and allow us, draw us close to you because when we are near you, there is nothing that can come against us. No siren song will pull us away from the mast of your presence. So bind us close to you, that we may abide in you, and that we may be ever satisfied simply being in the presence of our King. Help us, O oh Lord, with this. Help us live and love and lead by your presence. In Christ's name do I pray, amen.